So verse 35 of John chapter 1. The next day, John the Baptist was there again uh, at the place where they were baptizing people with two of his disciples, not disciples of Jesus, two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now again, understanding who he was speaking to, he was speaking to people who were aware of what the Lamb of God was. They would have known the Lamb of God to be an actual lamb that would have been sacrificed at the Day of Atonement, that their sins would have been entered into the Lamb through the shedding of blood, signifying death, that there was death to sins. But that was a temporary solution that had to take place year in, year out. Now, this is the declaration that, look, this person is the Lamb of God. So, like, their attention would have been up straight away, right? And John was a bit of a maverick. He was talking and ruffling a few feathers at the time as well. So when the disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, this is the first documented words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's different in the other Gospels. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? In the King James, it says, What seek ye? <laughs> I can't say that with a straight face. Eh? What seek ye? Please, I'm not trying to diminish the Bible. And I'm not laughing at the Bible. I just, when I think of that kind of language, I think of um, Monty Python. <laughs> and then I can't help but smile. Has anybody seen The Life of Brian, Monty Python, or The Holy Grail? Monty Python. You know that scene where they start cutting off limbs? It's just a scratch. Keep going, you know? Anybody? Yeah. You need to watch it. You need to watch more sport, and you need to watch Monty Python. Um, <clears throat> the King James says it like this, What seek ye? So in, in the NIV, which is often my reference Bible, it says, What do you want? Now in the King James, it's saying, What seek ye? ye, or what are you searching for? That's the question. Because the actual Greek word that we would find in our New Testament um, speaks more to seeking. What What are you searching for? What are you seeking? And it's a seeking in order to find something through thought, through meditation, and through inquiry. So it wasn't a seeking for something physical. It's significant to note that these first chosen documented words are not words of um, declarative power of Jesus. They are not guidelines on good living. They're not even a reminder of the law. That the first words documented in the Gospel of John are Jesus asking a question. Not making a statement. Now it's different in other Gospels, okay? Different in other Gospels. But this here, he's posing a question. What do you want? Like, What are you searching for? If, if you are following me, which you are now doing, like, what are you searching for in following me? What do you want out of this situation? 
And it's a question I think all of us need to be asking. And even Connie praying this morning, her constantly saying, what do you want? Now, when you hear that, somebody in a church context, somebody in a faith context, before God, um, how do you feel when, when it's put on you to now present to God what you want? Do you feel a little bit like, is that even right for me to do? Can, like, who am I? Who am I to ask God, like, or tell God, or, like, I, I used to live so much of my life in, in relation to God, more, God, what do you want? Now, that's not a bad thing. I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing, okay? But it's quite clear what God wants. And God already knows what he wants. There is this revelation through the scripture which constantly tells us what God wants, okay? So when we come before him and we say to him, God, what do you want? There's a lot of big, overarching wants of God. One of the primary wants of God is that all people would come into relationship with him. That would be a want of God. God, what do you want? I want all people to come to a personal relationship with me. And I've made that possible to you through Jesus. That all people would know intimate, saving, freeing relationship. That's a want of God. So we don't need to ask God, what do you want? But I love that Jesus puts back on us, what do we want? And oftentimes, the response to that question initially is not really the truth. I would know that it often requires asking a question more than once to actually get to the genuine response of people. You know what it's like when you see somebody for the first time, how are you? What's the natural response? Like, oh, good, fine. You stop and you look somebody in the eye and you genuinely ask them, how are you? And you ask them again, how are you? There's going to be something. Now, they might be fine. <laughs> they might be awesome. And you might look a bit weird asking that as many times as you do. But we would know that there is always something deeper. And that's what questions do. Questions cause us to go a bit deeper. And so I love that we would see in the Gospel of John, the first time that Jesus opens his mouth, He's actually causing humanity to go somewhere deeper. And so when it comes to our relationship of Jesus, our following of Jesus, what do we want? What do you want? It's not the first time that Jesus asked that question. There's, there's multiple occasions where Jesus would have asked that question. In Luke chapter 18, verse 35, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. So blind person begging. When this blind person heard the crowd was going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way, those who were supposedly close to Jesus, those who were perhaps putting on the facade of being religious or devout, or they get a little bit annoyed with a human being 
who's in need crying out to Jesus. Isn't that true of us Christians sometimes? Um, that we're kind of leading our way, right? We're following Jesus our way, the way in which we think it should be, and we're trying to keep it nice and contained and nice and orderly. And here we have somebody upsetting the apple cart, calling on Jesus. So they actually rebuked this person and told him to be quiet. This person doesn't just stay quiet. This person had such need and had such belief that Jesus was the answer to this need that this person could not help but cry out again. And there's something in that for all of us. There's something in that that we would cry out, perhaps maybe a little bit timidly, perhaps a little bit reserved, and there's going to be somebody or something that tries to shut us down. You're too loud. You're, uh, you're too um, outside of the religious box. You don't look right. You don't sound right. Just tone it down a touch. But this person cries out even more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops. I wonder if Jesus could have stopped the first time. But is there something in him seeing whether this person would cry out again? Jesus stops. And again, here is a question. Verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? So what do you want? Now there's an action associated, okay? But we've just kind of laid a bit of a foundation as to who we believe Jesus to be and who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And we believe that God sees all, knows all. We would believe, therefore, that God knew what this person wanted. So why the question? Why put it back on this person? Wasn't it obvious what this person wanted? And we see the obvious response. We see, Lord, I want to see person was blind. So that would be the obvious response. Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Okay? There's two parts of the sentence. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. We might think it's the same. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. We, we clump it in, in one, but it's actually two separate parts. So this person received sight. Miracle. Amazing. Got what he wanted. But you know, Jesus has this remarkable way of always doing more than what we had anticipated. And the more being perhaps what we actually needed, not what we thought we needed. Because when it says receive your sight, your faith has healed you, that word healed, again, is a, a Greek word, sozo. I'm not saying it right. If there's any Greek-speaking people in the room, shout it out loud. If you're not, just accept that's the way you say it. Sozo. What a classic white dude saying. Sozo. <laughs> I would imagine that in Athens they're not saying it like that. Um, but that word healed is the Greek word sozo. And what that word actually means, it does mean healed physically, but it actually means saved or rescued. It actually means made whole. And so when Jesus says receive your sight... Natural healing took place, healing. But then actually says your faith has healed you, sozo. It's made you whole. 
It's healed you, but it's also saved you. This person wasn't necessarily looking to be saved, but Jesus, in his loving kindness, seeing faith being activated, brought about salvation in this person's life. And I'll show you that it's actually the same word that we would find in Ephesians 2 when it says this, once you were dead in your transgressions. This is all of us, by the way. This is true for all of us. Once we were all dead because of our disobedience and many sins. We were all born into a state or condition that was separated from God, who is life. And so being born separated from life means that we would exist in the opposite of what life is, death. And that state or that condition is known as a state of sin. To be separated from God is to live in sin. Now it manifests in our behavior, it manifests in our actions. and in that. So we sin specifically, but generically, if we're living disconnected from God, we're living in sin. Okay? So all of us were in the same boat. So uh, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the command of the powers in the unseen world. There is an unseen world. That is what we believe from a Christian worldview. There is something that goes beyond what we would see naturally. He is the spirit that is at work with all of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of a sinful nature. By our own nature, we were subject to God's wrath or God's anger. Not that God was angry with us per se, but angry at the condition of us. Just like everyone else. But verse 4. But God, who is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. In, in my Bible, it's in brackets, it says this, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Okay, in the NIV, verse 8 of that says it like this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. That word saved is sozo. So we see it in Ephesians 2, and we would acknowledge that the sozo of God speaks to salvation. Salvation to be entered into the book of life for eternity, salvation to have our sins forgiven, salvation to have a brand new start, salvation that fills life in meaning here and now and for eternity, we would note in that context, but it is the same word that Jesus used when this person cries out for what I thought I wanted, sight, receives sight, but also receives sozo, salvation, rescuing. So what do we want? So Jesus is always looking to penetrate a little bit deeper. He's always looking at the inner life of a person rather than just the outer life of the person. In the outer life of the person, our behavior, our actions, our words, they are important. There's no denying that whatsoever. And they are important to God. It's not that God would just be like, do whatever you want, say whatever you want. I'm only interested on the inner person. The priority lies within the inner person. Because that's ultimately where we're going to see true transformation taking place. But that transformation is ultimately only going to take place through sanctification, another big kind of church Christian word. And sanctification simply means I'm changed, but I'm changing. It happens at the same time. So faith in Christ makes us changed, 
We are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We now stand before God unblemished and righteous. That's the changed. But if some of you noticed that you don't always act righteous, just some of you, I don't think all of you. So you think to yourself, well, if, if I'm changed, why aren't I perfect? Because there is a changing taking place. And that changing is what God desires for our life. But that changing takes place inside first. May it work its way outside after. And so we have this desire for God to always go deeper, always work on the inner person. What do you want? What do you want in following Jesus? Okay, now what do you really want? (laughs) See, because what we want can have different sides to it. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, It was about that time that the mother of the Zebedee brothers, she came with her two sons, knelt before Jesus with the request. Jesus again asks, what do you want? She replies, give us your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest place of honor in your kingdom. One at your right, one at your left. Jesus responds, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea. Like, I'm asking you, what do you want? You're giving me a response, but you actually don't want that. He says, you have no idea what you're really asking. Because he goes on to say, are you prepared or are your sons prepared to walk what is going to be required of them should you desire this end result of honor? He he uses the example of a cup and and the cup is, is seen in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane where uh, Jesus himself says, will you take this cup from me? A, a cup is representative of the life choice that we're making, okay? It's like he says to the, to the mom, which, you know, like moms are always looking out for the best interests of their boys, right? You know? So she's like, you don't know what you're asking. Because if you, if you are asking that, do you understand that this is going to be required of them. And if you knew that this would be required of them, you might not be asking that. So what do you want? And then what are you prepared to walk through based upon what you want? So ask yourself that question. What do I want in Christ? Um, Psalm 139 is, is what I'm finishing with. Because again, the questions would always speak to motives. And motives are... are uh, representative of what's going on in the inside. And, and I, I see God so interested in motive, not just in action. Uh, the, the poor widow who brought two coins to the temple offering in the Gospels, which we will touch on eventually, got the attention of heaven through bringing two small coins So God is not looking at the action. He's looking at the intent, the the motive, the the inner. Psalm 139. David, who is known as somebody who had the heart after God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the ways everlasting. Search me. And know my heart. It's not a comfortable prayer. It's, it's not a resulting in a Ferrari prayer. You know? 
but it really speaks to the core of what God desires for you and I. That He would truly know our heart. That we would truly know our heart. And that God would search us. So what do you want? Let's pray together. Father, we just choose right now to receive whatever it is that you've spoken to us. We know that there is one message being vocally spoken through me, but that this message by your spirit could be received in so many different ways. Because you see each of us, you know each of us. And so Lord, we pray right now by your spirit, the message that you desire to speak to us would be loud and clear. That you would seal it and settle it in us. And that Lord, as your word takes root, that we would see it bear fruit in our lives. We pray blessing and grace over every person. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here this morning, everybody. Hang around for a coffee.